Hello, and welcome to Quilt Achievement's Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and trends that we have been exploring for you here at Quilt Achievement. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on, or by following hashtag QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Ollie Creasy, research analyst based in London. Uh, and this week, I am pleased to be joined by regular podcast guest, Richard Carter, head of fixed interest research, and Chris Beckett, our head of equity research. Good morning to you both. It's been a busy week in the world of finance. Uh, we've seen several banks, big and small, uh, put under the microscope. Uh, and of course, we've seen uh, news over the weekend that Credit Suisse is to be uh, acquired by UBS in a deal brokered by the Swiss National Bank, uh, and hopefully shoring up uh, any problems uh, well, with, with the, the latter anyway. Um, combine that with a number of big political headlines, uh, and there's actually plenty for us to discuss. So uh, I'm going to come to you, Richard, first. Um, we've seen yields and swap rates fall quite substantially in the past week or so. Um, although notably, we also saw the ECB raise rates 50 basis points last week as well. Um, did that increase surprise you at all? Uh, I mean, you're right, Ollie. We've seen some huge uh, moves in bond markets over the last uh, week or so because of uh, the sort of mini crisis or whatever we want to call it in the, in the banking sector. Um, did the ECB move surprise me? Um, they've got form. Uh, if you cast your mind back a long time ago, 2008, they decided to, that that would be a great time to raise interest rates because they were worried about inflation, uh, only to have to cut them uh, pretty quickly afterwards. So I guess it wasn't a huge surprise, although I, I was kind of expecting them maybe to go for a 25 basis point hike and not a 50. Um, I mean, the central banks have got a real tough kind of situation at the moment. On the one hand, they're trying to deal with inflation uh, and bring that down. And, and the sort of primary way of doing that um, is interest rates. But on the other hand, they've got this uh, sort of burgeoning bank crisis going on. But they're trying to deal with that through other measures, whether it's sort of liquidity measures or or getting obviously, you know, UBS and uh, Credit Suisse uh, tied up together. So, um, yes, a bit of a surprise, but it is a tough, it's a tough job for uh, central banks to know what to do at the moment. Indeed. Um, and maybe returning to those uh, those big yield shifts that we talked about, could you maybe give us a, an insight into how notable those changes have been and, and what the impact therefore is on, on the expectations for Bank of England and US Fed rates, both of which are making announcements this week? Yes, they are. Uh, huge, absolutely huge moves. I mean, um, I think the, the best example I can give you probably is uh, two-year uh, US Treasury yields. These are quite sort of policy sensitive, so they're a good reflection uh, of what markets are thinking about uh, central bank policy. Uh, and uh, just, I think, 10 days to go, uh, you could get a 5% yield on a two-year US Treasury bond. Uh, now you're getting more like uh, 375. So it's been a dramatic uh, drop in the space of 10 days. And, and that's uh, kind of reflect, reflecting a big sort of flight to safety uh, and a change of view on what the Fed's going to do. So, um, you know, as I say, inflation is still an issue. Um, but, um, you know, whereas previously markets were expecting the Fed to hike uh, up to potentially, you know, 5.6% uh, over the next few months, they're now not even sure whether they'll be uh, hiking rates this week, and maybe they'll decide that it's been a good time just to wait and see what the um, what happens in the sort of uh, banking sector. And then, and then, sort of going forward beyond this week, you're now the market's now pricing in uh, quite aggressive rate cuts from the Federal Reserve by year end. So that's kind of what's behind the move, particularly at the um, 
the front end of the Treasury market. Um, as for the Bank of England, quite hard to know. I mean, the um, I, I could see them pausing this week again. I think there's some members of the committee who think they've probably done enough already. So maybe a, a pause would be sensible. Um, markets are sort of pricing in, pricing in an outside chance of a 25 basis point hike this week and then kind of on hold for some time. But um, yeah, any, anything could happen, obviously, with this banking situation. So we'll have to wait and see what the uh, central banks decide. Absolutely. So uh, we'll whisper it, but it, it feels like there may even have been a little bit of progress in UK politics this week. Um, we've had a budget that didn't even crash the markets, proposals that, that might bring some of the public sector strikes to an end, and suggestions that the UK may even uh, avoid a recession this year as well. Um, we're coming up to 150 days of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. Do you think the UK population is is rebuilding trust in the Conservative Party at this point? Uh, the the um, I agree. I mean, it was a fairly sensible budget. Nothing nothing crazy like the mini budget of six months ago, whatever it was. Um, and uh, you know, I think the kind of calm leadership that um, uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are trying to display of trying to um, sort out the uh, problems that UK economy faces is kind of to be welcomed uh, by markets uh, for sure. Although, yeah, even if we avoid recession, it's not like we're going to see bumper growth in the UK, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, the polls suggest that uh, they're not seeing much uh, of, a, of a bounce. You know, the Conservatives aren't seeing much of a bounce from this yet. I think, um, you know, you're still living with the uh, sort of cost of living crisis and, and also the sort of fallout from the, from the mini budget and, and all that sort of those sorts of things and the change of leadership. So I think still some way to the election. So who, who knows, maybe the, maybe the Conservative ratings will pick up. But at the moment, it looks like they're not really getting much benefit. Indeed, I would agree with all of that. Um, so I'm going to come to Chris now. Uh, not often that I get to interview my boss like this, so I'll make the most of it. Um, We've given Will, our banking analyst, a week off from uh, some of the banking questions and, and whether we're uh, facing the next global financial crisis. But it, it does seem interesting to me that we haven't seen any UK banks mentioned uh, as vulnerable. Um, and yet, despite that, the UK stock market had a pretty tough week, uh, I think underperformed the US and the EU as well. Uh, any thoughts on, on that and what might have caused it at all? Well, first thing to say, um, well, we haven't given our banks analyst a week off. He's just not on the podcast. He's working harder than ever, got an awful lot of things to look at and to check. I think, firstly, to say that um, the nature of bank runs and the loss of confidence that we've seen in a number of institutions, there is no bank, however strong the financial metrics, there's no bank that can survive a run caused by a loss of confidence. If you think of how banks make their money, it's there's a duration mismatch. Deposits are largely can be withdrawn at will or quite quickly. But the assets, the loans that banks make are generally uh, much longer term. So your deposit base can be removed far quicker than you can get the money back from people that you lend to. And the ability to, to give a lower interest rate on your deposits than you charge on the loans that you make, that's the profit margin for the average bank. It does mean that it's inherently unstable when you get that loss of confidence. So um, we spend a lot of time looking at the fundamentals, but if the confidence goes in a bank and 
we mentioned Credit Suisse over the weekend. The financial metrics on their bank, if you'd have looked a couple of weeks ago, looked generally reasonable. There were issues around the management and some of the strategic decisions that they've made, but the credit metrics of the bank were within normal limits. Um, if you want some background watching on this, um, go back and watch It's a Wonderful Life or even Mary Poppins. Um, bank runs don't have to be based on economic reality. It's the confidence and the loss of confidence that matters. And right now, there's very little confidence in any bank in the world. Just look at the way the share prices are moving this morning. Um, that sort of negative introduction aside, I think the UK banks are in a far better position than they were before the great financial crisis. They've got better, tighter regulation, um, harder capital requirements, and harder capital requirements to meet, particularly than US regional banks that started this crisis. It's the relaxation uh, in the requirements of those regional banks that have led to deposits leaving those banks to the larger um, systemically important US banks that have tighter regulation. Um, there's better risk management uh, on the UK banks. I think one of the things that we learned um, the hard way of the banks that have failed in the US is quite how woeful some of their risk management was and the risks that they were, were taking. Um, valuations um, across the banking sector and particularly the UK banks are discounting an awful lot of bad bad news. So on fundamentals, they look good value at the moment, but no bank can survive a loss of confidence. And fortunately, so far, um, the sort of the spotlight hasn't landed, particularly on any UK bank, and hopefully that can continue. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It's, uh, it's not often that we hear Mary Poppins referenced in the podcast, but it's it is a good point. Um, uh, and now here, here is a fairly big question uh, for you, Chris. Uh, it's cards on the table time. Thinking about the events in, in the banking sector over the last couple of weeks, how seriously do you think, how, how severe will this go down in, in history if we wind forward a couple of years? Do you think we'll be looking back at this as a, as a sort of volatile, volatility blip or, or perhaps a moment where something more fundamental has changed? Hopefully we will look at it as a blip. Um, I think what we've had is a rotation uh, back. Really, since last autumn, we've had um, cyclically exposed companies in industrial sectors and financial sectors and the, the banks themselves doing better than other areas of the economy as expectations for interest rates um, increased. So the UK market was down over 5% last week. In fact, the US market, which is far more tech heavy, was up. The sort of companies that benefit from uh, lower expectations for interest rates. So that's a bit of a reversal of what we've seen the last few months. And that's, um, I think that's healthy for markets, uh, a bit of a reality check that um, portfolio managers and investors going pro-cyclical wasn't a one-way bet. Um, Richard's already mentioned that that financial stress that we're, we're seeing um, and the chances of that impacting the real economy. 
The central banks have got a very difficult job. They need to address inflation and tight labor markets to enable sustained growth in the economy, but they need to do that without crashing um, the financial system. So chances are you, we end up with higher persistent inflation for longer um, because central banks can't do everything that they would normally want to do to reduce aggregate demand in the economy, reduce those inflation pressures um, in the present um, stress in the financial system. Um, I think some of the specifics of what's happened, policymakers have moved pretty quickly. Um, they've addressed um, the banks that are at risk of failing, either through the agreed takeover uh, of Credit Suisse, um, guaranteeing deposits that we've seen in America. Essentially, um, the American government, through their banking deposit scheme, are insuring every deposit in a U.S. bank, not just the ones below a, a capped level. Um, people are still worried about their ability to withdraw deposits, so it's not it's not engendered a complete recovery in confidence, but it's done quite a lot to do that. Um, if it can be constrained um, or if it can be contained, I think we will look back in a year or two and see it as a blip. But it is a reminder that the regulation of the financial system um, post-financial crisis really does matter. And it's not something that should be relaxed um, without very careful, careful thought. Um, banking system, the financial system, is systemically important to our economies. It isn't a normal industry, and it should have very tight constraints so that this thing doesn't happen and that you can maintain confidence. Thanks, Chris. Um, uh, so maybe I'll just bring it back to, to what many would consider a more normal industry. Um, I know that when you're not appearing on podcasts or, or managing a team of of analysts like myself, you cover a number of retail companies. Uh, so I thought I'd maybe ask your views on the John Lewis results this week, which looked pretty challenging, to be fair. Um, is this a company-specific issue, do you think? Is there some read across for any of the publicly traded retail companies out there? I think if you think about large retailers in the UK, and particularly large food retailers, that is the most important part of John Lewis's profits, the Waitrose business. Um, those companies, big food retailers, don't have the best uh, reputation, but they are incredibly difficult businesses to run successfully. Um, they are, if you think of the typical food retailer, it's a very high volume, low margin business. So very small changes in what you do in your cost base, your buying terms, the amount you pay in rent have a big impact on your profitability. Um, John Lewis have been on the wrong side of that. Their costs have been going up. Um, their sales have been constrained. Um, their profits have been coming, coming down. Um, if you think about it in terms of where you would prefer to invest, the typical food retailer in a good year will generate about a 4% operating margin after its rent. Um, a good supplier, and you think about Unilever or Reckitt Benckiser, in a good year will be getting up to high teens 20% operating margins. So a big multiple of the margin of a food retailer. And 
when you get into low margin businesses, scale does matter. And if you compare Waitrose to Tesco, Tesco dwarfs um, Waitrose in terms of buying power. And that gives them the scale to operate that bit more efficiently, be that much more competitive and avoid that negative operating leverage that John Lewis have suffered from. So John Lewis have, if you look at the problems that they've had, there's a cost of living crisis in the country we've spoken about often. There's more competition at the higher end um, of food retail industry, Marks and Spencers are operating far better than they have in the past. It's not been as easy for John Lewis. The other side of John Lewis's business is department stores. And that's, it's a retail format you wouldn't reinvent if it didn't exist. A number of department stores chains have ceased to exist. Um, you think of what happens to Debnam, Debnams, etc. So a lot of capacity has come out of that market. Working out how many department stores, what level of service you need to offer to have a growing profitable business is something that John Lewis have been struggling with. And I don't think they've got a final answer yet. Um, they know they need to cut costs, but they can't be seen as a value operator. They they're the way they they position themselves they they are selling a better quality product and a better level of service than their competitors to people who are prepared to pay for it so it's a difficult management uh situation the other side and this is where i will defer to you ollie is the property side of john lewis's business um about a 130 million out of the 230 million loss that they made last year was down to um, revaluation of their properties. Um, for retailers that own a good chunk of the property that they operate out of, um, those properties are valued based on the operating company's ability to pay rent. And when the tenant has been suffering, and this is when the industry has been suffering as well, and there isn't an alternative tenant, obviously, for those sites, um, the value of those properties decline with the with the profitability. And that's what is come through into the profit and loss of John Lewis. It's not necessarily, well, it isn't um, a cash loss in terms of those property revaluations, but it does make the, the stress of that business a lot worse. So I think really to come back to sort of summarize, to answer your question, um, there, there are a number of specifics to John Lewis that um, will be difficult to solve. Um, they are grappling with them, but a number of the pressures on them are common to the whole retail segment. Thanks, Chris. Very insightful there. And, and I, I certainly think we could all agree that there's not many commercial property owners out there who are happier with the value of their assets compared to where they were a year ago. So uh, in that regard, so is John Lewis and not unusual. Um, that's all we've really got time for today. Um, so before we wrap up, uh, first off, let me offer some sincere congratulations from, a, from an Englishman to the Irish rugby team on their Six Nations Grand Slam this weekend. And good luck to your, your preferred nation in the World Cup later this year. Um, so all that's left for me now is to say thank you. Uh, thank you both for the insights uh, and for all of you indeed for listening. Um, 
did you enjoy this discussion today? We'd love to hear from our listeners. So do please review the show now, wherever you are listening. Uh, and please also share it on your social media and tag us at Quilt Achievement. To make sure you don't miss a future episode, tag, tap that subscribe button. And we will be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachieviot.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on that website, or again, on those social media pages. Finally, do you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts in our next podcast? We love to hear from our listeners and be challenged by them, so simply ask them via the weekly comment pages on our website. That's it for today. So thank you again to Richard and Chris for your time today and to all of you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.